0: For most of the world, the non-scientist types with no security clearance, the nuclear age started with a bang. Two of them, actually. Atomic bombs dropped on cities in Japan to force an end to World War II. It was a technology like nothing we'd ever seen before. As historian Richard Rhodes put it,
1: It proved itself to be, oh my God, the winner of wars.
0: The horrifying devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki demonstrated the destructive capabilities of nuclear power. Even Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, a man who knew more about this new technology than just about anyone else, seemed in awe. I
2: remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that.
0: Technological breakthroughs are often double-edged, and fission is perhaps one of the greatest examples of this. By breaking the atom apart, we learned we could flatten cities and win wars. But as I mentioned in the last episode, scientists had envisioned the possibility of harnessing nuclear energy for good, even before they created the bomb.
1: Uh, and, and it seemed just like a promising future for every, in every possible way.
0: So now, with the end of the war, Even as we continued building atomic weapons at an alarming pace, scientists, government, military men, and yes, even the public started thinking about what else we could do with atomic power. But separating the idea of nuclear energy from nuclear bombs would prove to be a tricky task. I'm Laura Krantz, and this is Wild Thing Going Nuclear, a series about the power of the universe, contained in the tiny little package of the atom you and I are living in the atomic age. The endless debate over harnessing that power. The
1: mysteries of the universe.
0: And whether we humans are responsible enough to mess with
1: it. Of benefit or of destruction. Of good
0: or of evil. We'd watched with horror at how atomic energy could be used for destruction. Now we wanted to see how we could use it for good. But
1: advocates for a nuclear future hit some roadblocks right out of the gate. I think one thing that I have noticed in studying particularly nuclear weapons and the fear of nuclear war is that the average person encountered the idea of nuclear fission first with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Dr. Sarah Roby is the author of Atomic Americans, Citizens in a Nuclear State, and she teaches about nuclear history at Idaho State University as people started to consider what nuclear physics could do in their lives, of course it was always a little bit clouded by this initial encounter with this type of science as something for war, you know, for destruction.
0: You can understand how that kind of introduction onto the world stage might have turned people off of
1: the idea of harnessing the atom. But there was also another big factor. You know, in the same way that I think the war purposes of nuclear weapons kind of cast a shadow, a long shadow over all of the nuclear industry, I think so too did the secrecy of this industry.
0: The entire nuclear industry, whether we're talking about bombs or reactors,
1: came out of an environment of incredible secrecy. The Manhattan Project. Virtually no Americans knew about what was happening there until August 6, 1945. And by that time we had spent $2 billion and thousands of Americans had been employed by this project. That secrecy made people uncomfortable.
0: Citizens who feel the government has been keeping things from them tend not to trust the government
1: very much. It does speak to a broader concern that was much more pervasive than just peace groups in the U.S. that There's something about the whole nuclear project that is profoundly anti-democratic.
0: The decisions about building and using the atomic bomb were made by a small group of very powerful men. There was no public discussion, which of course made sense given what was going on in the world, the whole defeating fascism thing. But after the war, the public wasn't
1: going to be as tolerant of that kind of secrecy. There's some tension there, Right, because the Cold War is going on, you know, the American public understands that we're competing with the Soviets, we don't want them to know about our nuclear program. But on the other hand, what does this say about our democracy? What does this say about our our righteousness in fighting the Cold War if we as citizens don't have any power or or say? in these very important conversations. President Dwight D. Eisenhower and his administration recognized this problem. They were very aware that that was not a good look for American democracy. And, and there's some, some pretty good archival documentation about um, the kind of behind the scenes discussions that went into the Adams for Peace speech and the Adams for Peace campaign more broadly. The Adams for Peace campaign kicked off in December 1953
0: when President Eisenhower gave a speech at the United Nations General Assembly. He spent much of his time talking about the dangers of atomic weapons and his concerns over the threat they posed worldwide. But he emphasized that he wanted to declassify many of the secrets that had been kept during the war and establish an international agency that would help advance peaceful uses for nuclear energy.
1: To the making of these faithful decisions, the United States pledges before you and therefore before the world, its determination to help solve the fearful atomic dilemma, to devote its entire heart and mind to find the way by which the miraculous inventiveness of man shall not be dedicated to his death, but consecrated to his life.
0: He also announced that the U.S. would continue to explore the peaceful uses of nuclear technology and science and share that with other nations of the world. Provided, of course, that they weren't communists.
1: This actually did start um, a broad international sharing of uh, nuclear expertise, um, but that always existed in tension with the Cold War. Right? There's a limit to how much nuclear expertise the U.S. was willing to share. So transparency, but with some
0: limits. Not to mention the fact that even as we were genuinely pursuing peacetime
1: uses for nuclear energy, we were still testing some
0: pretty destructive weapons.
1: You know, we started being okay with shipping uh, fissionable material abroad under very specific circumstances (laughs) and, you know, teaching other nations about, you know, how to set up their own, um, you know, nuclear reactors for power and stuff. But, like, we never stopped making bombs (laughs) Um, and... By the end of the 50s, not only did we have both thermonuclear and atomic weapons, but we had intercontinental ballistic missiles and ways to deliver them um, by air, by sea. And so the cynical take here is that Atoms for Peace, yeah, there were some small moves, but it never was at the expense of Atoms for War.
0: The thing to remember is that while the uses of atoms for peace or for war are very different, the basic physics behind both uses are the same. Fission atoms release energy. The outcome depends on how controlled the process is. So here we have this instrument of war, built in complete and total secrecy. And now the government wants people to get on board with the idea of using this technology as a way to power the nation. That is not a publicity
1: campaign that I'd want to run. The challenge after World War II for promoters of nuclear power, what was at the time called atomic power, was to really split off or separate atomic power from its origins in the military and in weaponry.
0: That's Dr. Natasha Zaretsky. She's also a professor of history at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and the author of Radiation Nation, That challenge of separating atomic energy's past from its future seems like it would have been a tough sell, especially after people had seen the negative side of things first.
1: What advocates of civilian nuclear power did was they worked really aggressively to to assure the public that atomic power not only had all of this enormous potential for addressing a range of problems, but also that atomic civilian power was nothing like bombs, that it was incredibly safe. Officials
0: thought that the best way to do that was through education. Sarah Roby again.
1: Yeah, I think there's um, there's this idea that if only people understood what's happening in a nuclear reactor, or, or if only people understood what nuclear fission is, that it's going to make this whole enterprise less scary, The government, specifically the agency that oversaw the use of nuclear energy,
0: then known as the Atomic Energy Commission, used comic books, pamphlets, radio ads, and of course movies to give atomic energy a more friendly face. Do you guys remember the Blondie comic strip? I read it as a kid. It's a strip that's been around a good long while, since the 1930s. And in 1949, the main characters, Blondie and Dagwood, appeared in an educational comic book called Dagwood Splits the Atom. The foreword was written by none other than General Leslie Groves, who oversaw the Manhattan Project.
2: By now, the world accepts the fact of atomic energy. What lies beyond in this new era are two paths, one to a benevolent future, the other to a ghastly end. We must choose the path to the benevolent future,
0: To show us the way, Blondie and Dagwood shrink down to the atomic level to get an electron's eye view of how atoms work. It's actually kind of fun to read, albeit dated. You can easily find it online. And it's a prime example of how important the government thought it was to educate the public. They partnered with all kinds of organizations to promote the peaceful
1: use of atomic power. The Chamber of Commerce, other uh, professional organizations that that sponsor these things. General Electric ran a couple of these sorts of what I call edutainment, right, educational entertainment films.
0: One well-known General Electric film came out in 1953 and was called A is for Atom. In a mere 14 minutes, it explains what an atom is, how energy is released, and how atomic energy can be used peacefully.
2: To provide vast quantities of energy to run the world's machines. To better feed tomorrow's world. To diagnose and cure the sick. To reveal more of the mysteries of the universe.
0: There's very much a brave new world feel to this film. Sort of a sense that we're on the cutting edge of science and about to witness some truly marvelous technological breakthroughs. And there were lots of other films, like The Atom Comes to Town
2: you and i are living in the atomic age the peaceful atom is here today working wonders providing a happier more abundant world for all mankind thousands of men and women earn their livelihood by harnessing nuclear energy for our benefit because the atom has come to town
0: this wasn't just about scientific progress, but also about economic
1: growth. One of the big points of that is to show, well, uh, this is a depressed economic area that is going to have jobs. That's good news. To appeal
0: to both children and adults, the Alabama Power Company created a cartoon character known as Reddy Kilowatt, who sang this little ditty.
1: I'm a busy little atom. I split myself in two. I multiply as many times as I have jobs to do. In summer, winter, spring, or fall, I'm ready every hour. Just push a switch and watch me zip with light or heat or power.
0: And then there's my personal favorite, the Gilbert U-238 Atomic Energy Lab, a toy lab kit that kids could use to learn about nuclear science, complete with your very own, very real uranium sample. The government actually encouraged the kit because they hoped it would help educate children about atomic energy and what great things could be done with it. Side note, in 2006, a roundup of the most dangerous toys of all time put this kit in the number two slot. Number one, lawn darts, otherwise known as jarts, which are now banned in the U.S. I mean, it's a giant heavy dart that you launch at a target 30 feet away. What could go wrong?
1: Ow! In any case, there were a lot of forces at work promoting atomic energy. There's kind of an an eclectic mix of bodies and organizations that are interested in promoting, you know, nuclear science education. And I think a lot of it just has to do with, like, trying to correct misconceptions or soften skepticism. Which isn't a bad thing. This was a
0: complex topic, and officials knew people needed to feel comfortable with it if they were ever going to get over the fears sparked by the bomb. So the government really pushed hard on this idea of an atomic-powered nation. In some ways, it became the latest iteration of the American dream, the dawn of a new era in science. This season of Wild Thing is supported solely by First Light Capital Group. Founded by female entrepreneur Alba Toll, First Light Capital Group is an innovative investment firm that strives to generate outstanding financial returns and change how the industry fosters talent and diversity. First Light has a dual-pronged mission. First, it trades public equities, private equities, and debt using its proprietary data-informed investment process. And second, through a separate seed fund, it seeks to cultivate the next generation of female entrepreneurs by providing women-led businesses in the technology and biotechnology sectors with the capital, infrastructure support, and mentorship needed to take their companies to the next level. To learn more about First Light Capital Group, please visit firstlightcapitalgroup.com. The government's plans to tame the atom were the stuff of futuristic fantasy. Todd Tucker, who was himself an officer with the Navy's nuclear submarine force, touched on this history in his book, Atomic America.
2: Especially in those early days, there's some crazy stuff you can find. Like there was going to be, there's a famous line where uh, the, the chairman of the Department of Energy said electricity would be too cheap to meter, like it wouldn't, it wouldn't even be worth metering it.
0: He's referring to Louis Strauss, who was the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission and who supposedly made that statement as part of a speech.
2: There were ideas about how you would use like nuclear bombs to like reshape the landscape and you could use it because you would have an unlimited power
0: source. This was known as Project Plowshare, an ambitious and insane plan to use nuclear explosives for things like big public works projects and natural gas extraction. Here's a brief and incomplete list of some proposals that were put forth. Widening the Panama Canal. Blasting underground aquifers in Arizona to connect them. Cutting a road through the California mountains to help build the interstate. Using hydrogen bombs to create a new harbor in Alaska. Not all of these were pipe dreams. In Rulison, Colorado, scientists detonated a nuclear bomb underground in the hopes of freeing natural gas trapped in the rock. It worked! But the gas was so contaminated with radioactivity that it couldn't actually be used. Officials mothballed these public works projects, although similar ideas still crop up every now and then. Like the time a former American president, I'll let you guess which one, repeatedly floated the idea of nuking a hurricane to prevent it from making landfall. Fact, this would not work. But in the 1950s and 1960s, people were so enthralled with nuclear that anything seemed possible. Electricity in abundance, Tiny reactors that could power our cars and planes and trains. Medical and agricultural benefits like the atomic peanut.
2: A North Carolina State College scientist using radiation to give Mother Nature a Herculean boost has developed the world's first atomic peanut. The new strain is expected to improve the nation's peanut industry by offering more resistance to plant diseases.
0: Nuclear could do anything. The hype around this new technology assured people that fabulous, mind-blowing changes were coming.
2: So there was a lot of, like, you know, almost magical powers attributed to it. Not, not very much downside.
0: Nothing but optimism. A 1958 article in National Geographic entitled You and the Obedient Atom opened with this direct quote. These unimaginably tiny particles work like genie at man's bidding." Their peaceful
2: energy is gradually shaping our world into a far better place.
0: This seemed like the next American frontier, conquering the atom, making it work for us. And for a generation of scientists, this became the opportunity to make discoveries, to really make a mark on the world. It was an era that stirred people's emotions and hopes, similar to what we would see with NASA and the space race a decade later. And, as with NASA, the government and the military would play a central role in making these nuclear energy dreams come true. A bit ironic, given that the government wanted to separate nuclear energy from nuclear war.
1: The military side and the civilian side sort of blended together in the early days. Of course it would, because the military had the technology. It had to be transferred over to civilian usage, and that meant training new engineers and all the things that go with that.
0: Much of the training would take place in the vast, windswept desert of Idaho at the National Reactor Testing Station, the NRTS. Established in 1949, the NRTS was essentially a giant laboratory where scientists and engineers and military men could play around with atoms. This was one of the top places to work on nuclear science and create breakthrough technologies. Even the Navy, despite being thousands of miles from a coastline, pursued its nuclear program out there on the lava seas of the Idaho desert.
2: This is the birthplace of the nuclear Navy. They built the prototype for the first-ever nuclear sub, Nautilus.
0: Admiral Hyman Rickover, sometimes called the father of the nuclear Navy, realized that the best way to propel a submarine for months on end was with a nuclear reactor. We'll hear a bit more about Rickover in a future episode. But he created the gold standard for nuclear reactors and engineers, one that still stands to this day. And the Navy wasn't the only group to have a presence out there, explains Todd Tucker.
2: The Air Force, of course, they tried to make a nuclear-powered airplane, which was just, you know, uh, it was bananas from the start.
0: Yeah, you heard that right. A nuclear-powered airplane. Something that would never need refueling, that had unlimited endurance unlike the poor pilot flying it. The nuclear plane was ill-fated from the beginning. It was heavy, and made heavier by the need for lead shielding to protect the crew. A crash could be catastrophic, and the cost was astronomical, even by military budget standards. Ultimately, it never got off the ground, and after 13 years of work and a billion dollars, the government scrapped the plan for the plane, which does not at all surprise me. I stood next to the decommissioned engines and they are enormous, as big as a house. I can't imagine how anyone thought they'd actually get airborne. Side note, though, some of the research on this ended up being useful when we started thinking about travel to Mars. Regardless, it seems everyone had fantastical ideas about what they could do with nuclear power. Todd Tucker again.
2: They all saw this, like, great... Nuclear power boondoggle was about to happen, and they didn't want to miss out on their piece of the pie, you know. Um, so that drove all that innovation. Not to say there wasn't like, a, you know, a perhaps a legitimate case to be made, not probably for the airplane, but for the Army and the Navy.
0: The Army had a network of distant bases in far-flung locations like the Arctic, where they could keep an eye on the Soviets. But getting fuel to those bases to keep them running was a real headache.
2: Fueling these was an enormous logistical challenge. And so, you know, a little self-contained nuclear power plant that would last for years and years seemed like a, uh, you know, a potential solution.
0: SL1, the ill-fated reactor at the heart of this story, was an early prototype.
2: SL1 was designed to generate about 200 kilowatts of electricity. So you could think of it as powering one radar station.
0: The reactor was built and began producing power in October 1958. While it wasn't as fancy as the Navy's nuclear submarines, the simple design meant it could be operated by just two or three men. It also had a lot of other pluses. It was lightweight, so a cargo plane could move all the parts. It was a boiling water reactor, meaning it had one of the simplest designs possible for creating energy.
2: You kind of cut the amount of equipment you need in a reactor in half when you have a boiling reactor.
0: The design had only five control rods, making for a smaller reactor core.
2: It wasn't portable. You couldn't put the whole thing on the back of a truck and move it around, but it was modular. It was designed to be kind of bolted together in place in a remote location.
0: And it had no bulky containment building surrounding it, which would have absorbed a certain amount of pressure and contained radioactivity in the event of an explosion, but would have also added to the weight and the cost.
2: They thought it wouldn't be necessary in the remote locations.
0: In keeping with the goals of President Eisenhower's Atoms for Peace program, the Army's nuclear reactor program was largely unclassified. The science and technology gleaned from the Army program would be made available to all, helping the civilian nuclear program along the way. SL-1 was a training reactor for the next generation of nuclear engineers. The operators came from all three branches of the military, Army, Navy, and Air Force, and were assigned to three-man crews known as cadres. The idea was that each cadre should be able to operate the reactor, simulating a future when only three people would serve as a crew in the Arctic. These men were specially selected and had to pass through a grueling program, eight months of instruction at Fort Belvoir in Virginia, before heading out to Idaho for immersive, hands-on training at the site. The first class of operators arrived at the National Reactor Testing Station in 1958. The fourth class arrived in the fall of 1959, and among them were Richard Legge and Jack Burns, two of the men killed in the SL 1 explosion. Though they didn't know each other well, their mutual dislike would grow over the next year.
2: So they had actually been in a fist fight, kind of a drunken pushing and shoving thing after midnight at a bachelor party. So they had personal animosity in their past.
0: But I don't think anyone anticipated their relationship would end the way it did. That's coming up on the next episode of Wild Thing. To learn more about America's relationship with the atomic age, check out Sarah Roby's book, Atomic Americans, Citizens in a Nuclear State. And for premium subscribers, we'll also have an extended bonus interview with her later this season. Premium subscribers get each episode early and exclusive access to all bonus episodes. Not to mention the warm, fuzzy feeling that comes from supporting the show. For more information, go to wildthingpodcast.com. That's Wild Thing Podcast, all one word. You'll also find more about this season, including how to get Wild Thing t-shirts and stickers. Links to the website and the shop are also on social media, at WildThingPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, please consider leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts, and definitely tell your friends. All of this really helps get the word out about the show and makes future seasons more likely. This podcast is a production of Foxtopus Inc. with generous support from First Light Capital. Wild Thing is edited by Alicia Lincoln with sound mixing and music from Louis Weeks. Our executive producer is Scott Carney. And I'm your host and creator,
1: Laura Krantz.